But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his own spirit, through his spirit who dwells in you. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, as we resume now our study of Romans, we thank you. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, that you are not only the author, but become now the subject of these verses. And we ask you that you would tell us uh, through the preaching, just as through the reading, about your own ministry to us and to believers. And let us be greatly strengthened and encouraged and grow in the knowledge of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, we need to remind ourselves that the fundamental thesis of that chapter is what Paul says in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And everything that he says for the remainder of this chapter is but a confirmation of that thought. He is heaping, as he is apt to do in other places, reason upon reason That there is now, therefore, no condemnation. So that everything that he says in verses 9 through 11 are no exception, offer further reasons, uh, or, or I could say, in light of the general theme of the chapter, which I've described as our assurance or our certainty of salvation, he is strengthening our assurance. He is giving us greater certainty as to our own salvation. The concern in verses 5 through 8, uh, which you remember I dealt with in three sermons. I never intended to. I intended to preach it in one, but I didn't, I didn't finish this first sermon and, and, and on we went from there. Uh, I hope it was something of a rich study in the spiritual mind. Uh, and I hope I piqued your interest perhaps in reading Owen on the spiritual mind. But if, if you look at... What uh, Paul is saying in those verses leading up to verses 9 through 11, he is helping us to understand the difference, the difference between uh, those for whom there is now, therefore, no condemnation and those for whom there is not. Or to use the language of verse 4, which immediately precedes what he says in verses 5 through 11, those in whom the righteous requirement of the law are being fulfilled. And what Paul is telling us in verses 5 through 11 is that. This is not true of everyone. The promise of salvation, the assurance which it offers to believers, is not automatic, nor is it universal. It is true only of the sons of God, to use the language that we later find in this chapter. It is true only for those who are in the spirit and not in the flesh. For them, there is justification, there is life, there are many blessings to those who are in the flesh, none of these things are true. You cannot say, in other words, that such a person is saved, such a person is going to heaven, or that such a person is alive in the spirit. He isn't. He's dead. He's dying. He's going to hell. He's condemned. But who are the sons of God? Well, they're described like this, Paul says, in verses 5 through 8. And we'll see in verses 9 through 11, he continues his description of the spiritual man. But he says, they're spiritual persons with spiritual minds and lives. But the emphasis, you remember, is the mind. In those verses, those who are 
in the spirit mind the things of the spirit. Their minds are set on the things of the spirit. They are thinking the things of God. They're enjoying to do so. And so they walk after God and not according to the sinful patterns of the flesh. Their lives, their outlook, everything about them looks radically different. So verses 5 through 8 are a general statement about the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The believer and the unbeliever. And the emphasis you, you might have noticed was upon the negative, which especially comes out in verses 7 and 8. That is, upon the unbeliever. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You might have noticed in verses 5 and 6, there was a contrast and a balance. But in verse 7, the emphasis falls upon the negative, and really that was the leading thought in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And he only brings in uh, the believer uh, to set him in contrast to the unbeliever. But verses 5 through 8, really the emphasis was on the negative, the unbeliever, those for whom it is not true that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled. But as you come to verses 9 through 11, we see that the emphasis returns to the believer. But you are not in the flesh, Paul says, but in the spirit. And it's no longer general, but personal. No longer negative, but positive. No longer general, but personal. You. Oh, it's true, Paul says, taking verses 7 through 9 together. It's true that those, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, verse 8. But keep reading. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You see, it it follows on immediately. Paul is applying the teaching to the believer. He's saying this isn't true of you. It's not true of you if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ. Carrying with it the idea that if you are a Christian, you can please God. And that God is pleased with you. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. You can please God. And so the way to look at verses 9 through 11 seeing them as flowing out of verses 5 through 8, is to see them as Paul's personal comment to the church. He has been describing this contrast and this difference, but now he is speaking and addressing, uh, speaking to and addressing them personally and directly, just as I'm seeking to do. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If indeed Christ Or the spirit of God dwells in you. If indeed Christ is in you going on to verse 10. And then in verses 12 through 13. Since verses 5 through 13 really are a unit. Verses 12 through 13 conclude the whole by applying to the teaching who are Christians. Verses 5 through 8 the general statement. Verses 9 through 11 the personal comment you. And then verses 12 and 13 what are you to do? Well you are To mortify the deeds of the flesh. You don't live by the flesh anymore. You live by the spirit. Stop living as fleshly sorts of people. Set yourself opposed to the flesh. That is what we will Lord willing consider next time. Well what is Paul's personal statement? We've begun to see it. But let me try to unfold it. It's that again. You're not in the flesh. But you're in the spirit. In other words. Everything that he said. In the negative side. Or in the negative column in verses uh, 5 through 8. Does not apply to you if you are in Christ. If you're a Christian. None of it applies to you. 
But everything that he said that was positive, especially in verses 5 through eight, uh, five, 5 through 6, I mean, that those who are in the spirit mind the things of the spirit. They set their minds on the things of the spirit. They live, they walk according to the spirit. And so this is what he goes on to expound and explain to us. The positive, the personal, what it is to be a Christian in contrast to fleshly sorts of people. And that fleshly person might have been you before you were a Christian. Indeed it was, Paul says. And so you are contrasting yourself with yourself. Uh, Likewise, you are contrasting yourself with the world. But the way I would comment as an aside to keep yourself from spiritual pride is to keep the contrast with yourself the forefront. You're not what you once were. You used to be like this, but not anymore. You didn't used to be justified, but now you are. You didn't used to be alive, but now you are. You didn't used to have the Holy Spirit, but now you do. And so here's the essential truth about the Christian. And this is the great thought of these three verses. It is that the Christian is a man who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Paul says he's in the spirit. That's the leading thought of verse nine. And it's what he was emphasizing in chapter eight, verses one through eight. The Christian is in the spirit. But the reason that he's in the spirit, he's living and dwelling in the realm of the spirit is because the spirit is dwelling in him. He is indwelt by the spirit. The spirit of God is in you. That is the essential truth about the Christian. And that is what makes him a Christian. That's why he's no longer dwelling in the flesh, but he's dwelling in the spirit. Why? Because the spirit's dwelling in him. Well, how are we to understand this? The first thing I would divide this under three headings. The first thing that we need to do is we need to identify the spirit. Paul keeps referring to him, but who is he? He's referred to him a few times already. But he hasn't told us until now who he is as a person. Underline that in your mind. He is a person. We see then him as a person, as one who is capable of relating to other persons. The Holy Spirit is someone who relates first and foremost to God. He relates to the Father. He relates to Christ. And it is especially his relation to the Son The spirit's relation to the son that's emphasized here, but equally as a person, he is capable of relating to us as persons. And he does. Now, this is highly interesting and useful to see as a person. He is capable of relating to us in this personal way. And we should also notice that from here on to the end of this chapter, he becomes the dominant focus, the life, the person, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Who dwells in us. Who is he? Well thus far he's been referred to simply as the Holy Spirit. And that's how we typically refer to him. In verse 5 of chapter 5. It's the Holy Spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. And that's a rich and wonderful blessing. But Paul it seems just mentions it as an aside. Although it's clear uh, he remembers it. He, he, He holds on to it. And it's here that that thought gets its fuller treatment. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in believers. He also briefly mentions him in verse six of chapter seven. He speaks of the newness of the spirit. You're not walking in the oldness of the spirit, but the newness of the spirit. So he's the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit. But as I said, those were just teasers, so to speak. He was he was mentioning his subject, but he only goes on to expound it later as as he often does. Really, all of chapter eight, you could say, 
uh, is, is the chapter on the spirit. And I've often thought of it that way. You say, well, I've, I've been saying it's on uncertainty. Well, that's exactly right. It's our certainty in the spirit. Let me modify that now. Not just our certainty in the gospel, but our certainty in the spirit. You notice uh, that straight away he is referred to who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse one, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. And on and on he goes. But but what you notice all the way up to verse nine is that he's still being referred to in this general way, just the spirit. The Christian is someone, Paul says, who's walking according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. Indicating our relation to him, but we still have not had clear teaching on who he is. Well, here in verse nine, he is identified as the spirit of God. Which is a very helpful way of describing him, not simply the Holy Spirit, but the the spirit of God. What is Paul saying? The spirit of God who dwells in you, verse nine, he's saying two things. He is at once identifying the spirit with God as God, and he is distinguishing the spirit as a person. As a person, he is distinguished from the father and the son. As a person, the spirit is not the father, nor is he the son. But as God, he is identified. He is one. He belongs to the Godhead. One God and three persons. And we are considering the third person of the Trinity. The person of the Holy Spirit. And so he is the spirit of God. He is God and nothing less. But as a person, he is the spirit. And as the spirit who is God, he is the spirit of God. A distinct person within the Godhead who dwells in believers. If you're a believer, he dwells in you even now. And it is his life in whom you dwell. And operate and live as Christians. You don't live in the world. You don't live in the flesh. You're living in him. He's been poured out on the church. He is the atmosphere in which you live. And in which your sanctification is unfolding. But do you also see that he is the spirit of Christ? Not just the spirit of God, but the spirit of Christ, he says in verse 9. He says, the spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 9a, verse 9b, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, and so on. What he is saying is this, that to have the spirit of God, who is the spirit of Christ, dwell in us, is to have Christ in us. The the, The thought process is this, the spirit of God dwells in you. He is the spirit of Christ, thus Christ is in you. Verse 9a, 9b, and 10. Of course, the same emphasis is on the person of the spirit. We haven't begun to confuse the persons of the Trinity. We are talking about the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And as uh, and that, that emphasis, by the way, is sustained all the way to the end. If you look at the very last phrase, his spirit who dwells in you, he's the focus. Again, we're not confusing the persons, but we are saying that the spirit of God as a person is the spirit of Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't that arresting? And isn't that illuminating? Doesn't that tell us a great deal about who this person is and what it means to have this person dwelling in you as a believer? Do you remember what Jesus said about his relation to the father? He said that he was one with the father so that to have the son was to have the father. If you have the Son, 
you have the Father. Why? Because they're one. Not one in the same person, but one in the same God. And so likewise, we might say that to have the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, in us, is to have Christ in us. And such indeed is the teaching of our Lord in John chapter 14. He says, I go away, but I send the helper. And so I'm summarizing here. I don't have it memorized. He says, and so I come to you. How does Jesus Christ come to take up his abode in the believer? In the person of the Holy Spirit, Christ in you. It is his identity with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Obviously, we are considering a great mystery. If you say, well, I don't understand that. I don't understand what you're saying. My answer would be, neither do I. We are considering, and I hope adoring, one of the greatest mysteries that there is, and that is the mystery of the Holy Spirit. But I say again on the authority of Scripture, that to have the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ dwelling you, is to have Christ in you. And so I would comment here, On the blessed relation between the two. The blessed relation between the Spirit and the Son. So often we think of the blessed relation between the Father and the Son. But how often have you thought of the blessed relation between the Spirit and the Son? And here in verse 10, verses 9 and 10 especially, we are asked to consider that. But this isn't the only place. As I said, John 14 and other places in Paul. Well, I begin with this. I state again, they are one. They are not one in the same person, but one in the same God. And so they are one with, uh, with each other. As the Son is one with the Father, so he is one with the Spirit. Such that for us to be indwelt by the Spirit is to be indwelt with Christ. As Paul says in another place, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How? How does Christ abide in the believer? Through the ministry of And the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the effect of being indwelt by the Spirit. There's another way of describing this. Chapter 6 of Romans. We we spoke often of our union with Christ. Chapter 8 as well. You are in Christ. That's what a believer is. He's someone who's in Christ. How does that come about? How does the believer come to dwell in Christ? Well, he comes to dwell in Christ as a result of dwelling in the Spirit. And it is the Spirit who affects his union with Jesus Christ. And apart from the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, there is no union with Christ. You are not in Christ. But indeed, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, well, then Christ dwells in you and you dwell in him. That's the teaching. But I could go further. And here we're still considering the blessed relation, the blessed union between these two persons, the Spirit and the Son. Again, thinking of what our Lord says at the end of uh, the Gospel of John, where he expounds upon the coming Of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we will soon in Acts in the evenings be considering an extended treatment of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. What happens when the Spirit is poured out on the church? The work of the Spirit is that of glorifying the Son. In exactly the same way that the work of the Son was to glorify the Father. So the the Spirit is sent in order to glorify the Son. Jesus says as much in John chapter 16 verse 14. I feel that I, I ought to read that. He says, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's the reason the Spirit was sent, beloved. He was sent in order to glorify the Son. In order to glorify the Son in you by taking what he said and teaching it to you. And so the Spirit comes and takes up his residence in us. He dwells in us for this reason. 
he says, Paul says here, in order to be the spirit of Christ to us. We cannot think of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit without thinking of the relation that he sustains to the Son. The purpose of his dwelling in you is to glorify the Son in you, to enable you to be able to say, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Jesus is Lord. And no man has ever said that sincerely from the heart, from a principle of faith, of saving faith, except as he was indwelt and enabled by the Holy Spirit. But all who are indwelt and enabled by the Spirit are able to say, and they do say, Jesus is Lord sincerely from the heart. How did they come to say it? By the Holy Spirit. And by this, Christ comes to dwell in our hearts by faith. Another comment with respect to the relation of the Spirit and the Son has to do with the blasphemy, the the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. In Mark chapter 3, we read the scribes saying this in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebel, and by the ruler of demons he cast out demons. And following Jesus' statement about the unpardonable sin, Mark says this in verse 30. And this statement is not made in the other Gospels. And so if you're ever in trouble about the blasphemy, uh, whether you've committed the unpardonable sin, I suggest you go to Mark 3. Mark offers this helpful comment. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. Jesus had just said, he who blasphemes the spirit, he has no forgiveness. Why? Because they said he has an unclean spirit. What they were saying in verse 22. This is a comment which makes perfect sense when you understand the relation between Christ and the spirit. Men were blaspheming Christ. They were denying Christ. Christ came full of the spirit. Casting out demons and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was doing that in their very midst. And it was in the midst of that that they were saying what they said. Now, he was full of the spirit in this sense. He was full of the spirit in the sense of the the union of the divine persons. The divine person of Jesus Christ is always full of the spirit. I mean, of the son of God. But, But especially we should note in his humanity. He was anointed. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was casting out demons. He was preaching in the fullness of the Spirit. And that is what was especially evident about him to those who had faith. Those who had faith not only were enabled to say Jesus is Lord, but they were able to, by the Holy Spirit, but they were able to recognize and to adore his relation to the Holy Spirit. To be able to say he comes as the anointed, the one who is full of the Spirit of God. And yet, do you see that men were saying something, men were saying uh, something else? They were not saying that he is the Christ, he is the anointed, he is the one who is full of the Holy Spirit. You see, the very issue at stake was his relation to the Spirit, and that is what they were denying. They were saying not that he was full of the Spirit of God, but that he was full of the Spirit of the devil. And what constituted the unpardonable sin... Therefore, was what they said of Christ. The same is true today. It is what men say of Jesus Christ. It is because men say he has an unclean spirit. He is not the Christ. He is not the Lord. It's because men say that. That for them there is no forgiveness. They deny not only him, but the relation that he bore to the spirit of God. They deny that he is the Christ, the anointed. And so they blaspheme 
the Spirit of God. They commit the unpardonable sin. But I remind you again of what Paul says, that it is otherwise with believers, that believers cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Why? It's because of what they say of Jesus. You see, that's the essential point. That's what we need to realize. Who do you say that I am? And no man is enabled to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And no one who has ever said that sincerely from a principle of faith has committed this sin. No, rather they confess him by the Spirit. And in confessing him, they are full of the Spirit. And it is out of the fullness of the Spirit that they make this confession. And that is the the point the Apostle Paul is making about the Christian as our second point. The identity of the Christian. And the first thing that is true about the Christian is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in him. Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the key thought. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And that is something, let us see, that is literally true. Just as it is literally true to say that Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He made this earth his abode. He dwelt in the midst of humanity. So it is literally true to say that the Holy Spirit dwells not only among us, but in us. The Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And where does he dwell? He dwells in you. And to be even more specific, as Paul is here, he dwells in your body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your physical, literal, mortal, we'll see that in a moment. Your mortal, dying body, full of sin, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul says the opposite is also true. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit of Christ. No, he is none of his. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Verse 9b. And so if you don't have the Spirit, you have no right to claim that you're a Christian. You have no right to claim the promises of Romans 8, which are the richest and the highest promises one will find in all of the Bible. But in saying, if, 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 if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His, what that also means is the opposite is true. That all who are in Christ are His. You see, if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His. But if you do have the Spirit, what is He saying? He's saying you're His. You belong to Him. You belong to Jesus. That's what a Christian is. He's been indwelt by the Spirit, so He now belongs to Christ. Christ claims us and owns us as his own. He says, these are mine. These are those for whom I have died and shed my blood. He is the one who is now advocating before the Father for us. And if he stands before the Father interceding for us, who is there then to uh, condemn us? Do you see how the claim of chapter uh, chapter 8 verse 1 is substantiated? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because we're his We belong to him. No, not those who are in the flesh. Of course not. But those who are in the spirit. Those in whom the spirit dwells. They belong to Christ. And so they will always be. What a blessing there is in the thought. And have you ever thought it? I belong to him. And he belongs to me. And how do I know that I belong to him and he belongs to me? The answer is this. Because the spirit of God dwells in me. And the, the fact uh, and the effect of the Spirit of God dwelling in me is that He effects an eternal 
union that can never be broken. Romans chapter 7. And if this is true, Paul says, going on in verse 10, that means that the body is dead because of sin. Remember, I said that the spirit indwells the body. Well, let us see what is true of the body, which is the tabernacle, the abode of the Holy Spirit. He is talking about the body, the literal physical body of man. He is not speaking of our spiritual condition. He's not saying that the Christian is dead because of sin. Let us note that very carefully. The Christian is not dead because of sin. He's about to say that the Christian is alive. And he said it so many times already. But he does say, and note the language, the precise language, that the body, the physical body, has become the seat of death. Why? Because of sin. Sin has killed us. Not inwardly, for there we've been made alive, but outwardly in the flesh, in the body. There what do we find? We find death. We find the principle of death, the principle of decay, wasting away, a process of decay, which begins just as soon as you're born. I say that as father of five and a a new baby that God is crafting in my wife's womb. I say even in that baby, the principle of death, though life has begun, is already at work. That is as stark and as, as, uh, as, as far as this teaching goes. The body is dead because of sin all of us the moment from the moment we are born are subject to a process of decay more and more and more until we die and that's why we die why do we die because of sin these bodies in which we dwell will soon very soon sooner than you realize lie in the grave and become but dust why because of sin We are brought back to the teaching of Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as one man or through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus, death spread to all men because all sinned. Why do all die? Because all sin. And because all sin, thus all die. That's the reason. And the fact is that this is true as much for the Christian as it is for the, the, the one who is not a Christian. And the reason is because sin still remains in the body, which is why we have the admonitions of Romans chapter 6, verse 12. What does he say there? He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In chapter 8, verse 13, he says that you are to put to death the deeds of the body. Sin is dwelling in the body. Chapter 7, we have similar statements as well. Sin isn't just dwelling in the body, it's causing all kinds of trouble. All of the trouble we face as Christian people is on account of sin which dwells in the body. And so we're exhorted to deal with sin in the body. We're about to in the coming sermon. This is the source of all the trouble we face. And because it is still there, we die. Again, there is a process of decay that we cannot stop. Try as we might. The grave awaits us all unless Christ should return before we die. But do you notice again, I am describing the Christian. I'm not just saying this is true of the one who's in the flesh. I'm saying this is true of the one who is in the spirit and in whom the spirit of God dwells. What is the teaching? The, t- the teaching is this. Mart Lloyd-Jones states it as well as any. He says, our present position as yet, our salvation is partial. Our salvation is partial. Or he puts it even more strikingly, and I think this is a very helpful way to put it. The body is not yet saved. No, rather, the body is dead because of sin. Oh, yes, the inner man is saved, but the body is not. The body is as yet unredeemed. The body is dead because of sin. 
It is a dead body that the Holy Spirit indwells. That is the teaching. But he goes on, thank God, that because the Holy Spirit indwells these dead and dying bodies of ours that will soon, very soon, lie in the graves. Because he does, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. He's saying this. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, and because of our justification, because of righteousness, and he always connects righteousness and life. He doesn't stop at the verdict, you're just. He always goes on to life. Because of our justification, we are alive. We are made new. And where is this life to be found? It is to be found inwardly, in the inner man. That is to say, the spirit, the new man. And here I take issue uh, with the King James or the New King James or the ESV. And I think I've just about covered every uh, version that's here. They all say the spirit, capital S. I don't think that's right. I'm not alone in making this observation. It's the spirit, lowercase s. The reference here is not to the Holy Spirit, but to the spirit of man that dwells within the body, which agrees with the contrast he's making. The body outwardly is dead because of sin. But the spirit inwardly of man is alive or it's life because of righteousness. Inside our bodies where the spirit dwells, there you will find not death, but life. Though outwardly you find death, and though outwardly we die, the spirit is life. It is alive because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by the Holy Spirit. Inwardly, in another place, Paul says, we are being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Though outwardly we're wasting away, or we're walking in newness of life, Romans chapter 6 verse 4, which is the newness of the spirit, chapter 7 verse 6. And it is new every day. Because this process of renewal. In other words, to say that the spirit of, is, is alive is to say that, yes, we're born again, but also that we're growing. That the life is manifesting itself more and more and more, even as outwardly we are dying every day, more and more. And there's a kind of inverse relation, Paul will say in, in 2 Corinthians 4, and even here in Romans chapter 8 in a little bit. Oh, yes, we're, de- we're decaying a little more each day, but we're also inwardly advancing a little more each day so that the more we die, the more we live. Are you amazed to hear it? The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. That is the portrait. And we as Christians are aware of both truths of ourselves and in ourselves. And what he says here, of course, matches our experience exactly. We do not look for everlasting life in the body, not here until the resurrection should occur, nor do we find it. We do not believe that as a result of becoming Christians that our bodies will not die. No, we find that people are dying all the time and that death awaits us all. To be a Christian doesn't mean that we do not die. That is never the promise of Scripture. No, Paul will go on to say that this is what it means to be a Christian. Chapter 8, verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. It's something we're looking for. We're not finding it in this life. We are experiencing the bitter fruits of sin, and so the bitter fruits of death every day. We are groaning. We are longing. We are looking forward eagerly. To the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of sons, that is the resurrection, when the salvation of the inner man will be matched by the salvation of the outer man. When the salvation that we experience 
uh, in our spirits will be manifest in our bodies. Salvation, Paul is saying, is partial. It is partial as yet, but it is no less certain. We are saved in spirit, longing for the redemption of our bodies. We are alive and yet dead. But this leads to certain consequences. The consequences of their blessed relation, that of the spirit and the believer. And that is my third point. The first thing is this. There are two consequences. And the first is that you are not in the flesh. And that's the leading thought. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Well, if the spirit of God dwells in you, here's what you need to see. That you're not in the flesh. That it is never true to say that you're in the flesh. Of course, it may be true to say that you are acting in a fleshly way. And Paul will say that at times uh, to believers, especially in 1 Corinthians. And he will say, and we will say that at times to one another, and we'll have to say it to ourselves. I'm acting in a fleshly way. But even when you're acting in a fleshly way, that is to say, when you're sinning, that doesn't mean you've gone back to the flesh. It doesn't mean you're out of the spirit and in the flesh. No, you're not. You're in the spirit. You're always in the spirit. That's where you dwell as a believer, even when you are acting in a fleshly way. And that ultimately will uh, fuel the exhortation that we find in verses 12 and 13. I, I'll leave that for the next sermon. But the most blessed consequence of everything that I've been saying, the spirit of God dwelling in our dead bodies, giving life to the inner man, is that we will be raised on the last day, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here is the most glorious thing of all. For all that I've said, this is the most glorious. Salvation is as yet partial, but to have the part is to be assured of the whole. The spirit has been given as an earnest, as a pledge of our full salvation. The first fruits, he says in verse 23, to have salvation in part is to be assured of the whole. And so we know that if he dwells in us, then he will surely raise us up on the last day, even as he did to Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Yes, it was the spirit of God who raised up Jesus Christ on the third day. And so it will be for us and no less certain. Death could no more keep him in the grave than it can us. Our, our bodies can no more remain in the grave than his. Why? Because it is the same spirit who dwells in you. And the same certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, though he died, is the certainty which God gives to believers and which believers have. The Spirit dwells in you, even as he dwelt in Jesus, the human body of Jesus Christ. He has made your body his abode. And while that abode is sure to die, even as Jesus' body died, lo, though it is dead already, he will not forsake his abode. He will in due time give life to your mortal bodies, Paul says. And I say to you, even as he did to the body, the human body of Jesus Christ, as he raised up the body of Christ, so he will raise up the body, your mortal bodies. For he will not forsake that which he now inhabits as his home. And in due course, he will save our bodies just as surely as he saved and gave life to our spirits even now. That is the certainty you see and the assurance which we presently entertain as believers. I know that I will be raised. I know that I will be made alive in the outer body. I know it because Jesus was raised. And I know it because the spirit now inhabits me. He dwells in me. 
And so I'm sure. And I am eagerly longing and looking forward to that great day, though sin and death trouble me now. And I am sure of it. I suppose that leaves only one question. And that is the question, how can I know that his spirit dwells in me? Of course, I accept the proposition as true. If the spirit dwells in me, then all this is true. I am certain not only to be alive inwardly today, but to be raised on the last day in the outer man. But how can I be sure that it's true of me? You see, everything hinges on the fact because the spirit dwells in you. Or if the spirit dwells in you, that's the essential condition. How can I know that the spirit dwells in me? Well, there's really only one answer. If you take the teaching together, and it's because you're no longer walking according to the flesh, but you're now walking according to the Spirit, Paul says. You don't live, you don't think, you don't talk like you used to. You've been made different, you've been made new. That's how you know. You're no longer walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or to use the language of verse 14, the Spirit is leading you. These and these are the sons of God. Who? Those whom the Spirit leads. And because he's there leading you, he's also testifying to you of the one thing you might have doubted. And that is that you are the sons of God. The spirit adds his testimony to ours that we are the sons of God by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, if nothing else, I I hope that you will begin to look forward to the teaching that is to come. The teaching concerning the Holy Spirit from here to the end of the chapter. The one thing I want to know is, am I in the spirit and is the spirit in me? If if I could be sure of that, then I would be sure of all the rest. Well, everything that Paul will have to say will help us to see this. But let us see that the way to be sure, the way to have assurance is to recognize and to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and to you. What it means to be dwelt in the Holy Spirit and uh, by the Holy Spirit, I mean. And let us look forward with great eagerness to what Paul And to what I will have to say in the coming sermons on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let me, uh, as I do from time to time, do a little reading from the book uh, as it so helpfully summarizes the meaning and the nature of the sacrament. I won't read it all, but I'll, I'll hit some key pieces. He says, our Lord, or, or it says, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until it comes again. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but a, re- a remembrance. Nor is it a mere memorial of Christ's sacrifice. It's a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit through faith. Thus, he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and our endeavors to serve him in holiness. The sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sins. 
Fourth, it's a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and each other. And fifth, the supper anticipates the consummation. I think the second point is the key one, at least with respect to the sermon, that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is ministering and Christ through the Spirit to us at the table. And what he is doing more than anything else is granting us faith. He's strengthening us, strengthening our faith. He is enabling us by faith through, uh, as I often say, these contemptible means for whoever thought uh, that a little cup of wine and a little piece of bread was anything. I certainly didn't. And yet God, the Holy Spirit, enables us to perceive in these very things, the death, the body, the blood of Jesus Christ, even the very uh, essence of the new covenant This is the blood of the covenant. This blood is the new covenant, Jesus says by which it's sealed, by which it's brought into effect, and by which all of the blessings are poured out on the church. We need to have faith. We need to be assured of our forgiveness. We need to be certain of Jesus Christ as our propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. And amazing, but this is, this is exactly how God operates in the new covenant. Not an outward glory, but through human weakness. All of this is on display at this, this table. And the only question that... I have for you as I fence the table is, do you believe that? Do you have such faith and do you have such a desire that Christ by this means might strengthen you? With those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that by faith we are enabled to rest and receive from him all of the gifts of salvation, even the forgiveness of sins and many other treasures besides. We pray that by this means you might cause us to grow in grace, the grace of faith, and that our assurance might be mightily increased, and that we would find, O Holy Spirit, that you are not only dwelling in us, but that you are making us conscious of your dwelling in us, and so making us sure of all that you are doing and will do for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.